Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a new study finds that it could take two decades for a younger person to save that 20% down payment for a new home. What's going to be done to fix that? Well, we'll discuss that. What steps are also being taken to tackle the long-term care crisis that's happening not just in Ontario, but right across Canada? And how is Beijing controlling Chinese media from here and around the world? Dr. Robert Hewish, Associate Professor with the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University, will join us to talk about that. It's all on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, talk about housing and affordability. Uh, unaffordability, I guess, is more the word here. Uh, recent survey done for Ontario specifically says that a young person in the Hamilton area or the London area, because they did studies in both, would have to work full-time for more than two decades to save up to 20% down payment for the average-priced home. That's that's what they call unaffordable housing. So what is happening? What can we do about it? Uh, let's bring uh, Michael Collins-Williams into the uh, discussion here. Michael, of course, is the Chief Executive Officer of the West End Home Builders Association. Uh, Michael, a pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Bill. Thank you for having me. Looking we know forward the to prices- the snow. Oh, I know. Yeah. Uh, we know the prices have, have increased significantly and we know how crazy things were in the housing market a little while ago. But when you put the numbers together, like the, this study has done here, uh, what's going on with the market? I mean, you know, can, can young people just write off the idea of ever buying a house? Well, a lot of attention has really been paid in the last few months to the recent staller, you know, even the moderate dip in resale home prices after years and years of relentless price increases that have eroded affordability, especially for younger people. And Bill, despite that drop, prices have only really returned to where they were in 2021. That's really a minor shift when we look at it in sort of the backdrop of the last couple decades of escalation. Across Canada, home prices rose by 21% in 2021 and rose 13% in 2020. And, you know, we're in a funny place in the market today. We've got some Canadians who've ridden that wave of escalation and they built well they built financial security we've got others who bought recently and now they're carrying some pretty large mortgage debts uh others that are on variable mortgage rates and are pretty worried going forward about renewal and then as you mentioned there's a lot of young people who've been sitting on the sidelines and despite that dip in pricing with the high mortgage rates that means that housing is even less affordable if monthly payments are higher well, and that is the conundrum, I guess, that most of these people are going to be facing. And and the study actually is trying to, I think, even things out here. And they're not saying nobody can afford to buy a house anymore. Uh, they're just saying it's probably going to take a lot longer to, to qualify. And that's that's not the builder's problem. That's the banks and the, the and the lending institutions that are going to have to look at that reality too. But let's let's talk about what is going to be on the market and what is quote unquote affordable these days. What are people looking for, and what are we building these days? Well, in terms of new home building, it's it's slowed down quite a bit in the last few months. So the, the irony is that we're in desperately short supply of housing, given our population growth. Uh, the Canadian population has grown by an astounding 865,000 people year over year and 360,000 just in the last quarter alone. And, you know, with the slowdown in the housing market due to the escalating mortgage rates, that means that there's less shovels going into the ground. Um, we're in a strange situation where um, the resale prices have gone down uh, due to the changes in the market, but new home prices, Bill, they're a little more sticky. It's harder for the new prices to go down because the builders are facing the same financing challenges uh, that people looking for a mortgage are. Uh, The cost to borrow and finance projects has skyrocketed. Um, Labor costs are up. 
Uh, material costs are up significantly, although the price of lumber has come back down to earth. Um, so it's it's difficult to actually have those price reductions on the new side. Um, and, and they've stayed pretty steady the last several months, despite drops on the resale side. So we've got some challenges going forward on that affordability um, on that affordability discussion because young people just can't break into that market. There always used to be kind of a pattern here. I mean, you know, young people might start living or renting, actually. Maybe it could be an apartment, could be a part of a house, whatever the case might be. Uh, for many of them, the first house was usually what they call a fixer-upper. And, and and they'd live there for a while and maybe do some work on it. And when you start a family, you probably need a bigger house. So on and on it goes. Uh, it sounds as if uh, when you do qualify uh, a young person or a young couple these days, uh, you better find something that you're going to like for a while because that, that flexibility within the market may not be there. And, and that's from a financial standpoint. Well, there's an entire sort of market spectrum and, and the way that, you know, you described it perfectly. The average person sort of starts out in a rental, saves up for a while, puts a down payment on that starter home or starter condo. And, you know, maybe five years later, they they can afford a little more space. And, and it's sort of a pattern that has um, developed over the last several decades of, of how people move through that housing continuum. Um, and looking back... Uh, you know, you started the segment with the amount of work required to save for a 20% down payment that for it, right now it would take an average of 22 years in Hamilton and Burlington of full-time work at the average wages a 25 to 34-year-old um, receives to save for that 20% down payment. That compares to just four years way back in the 70s when a lot of uh, today's aging population started out. Um because after adjusting for inflation, home prices have tripled since the 1970s, and and those increasing mortgage rates and high prices, it's locking young people out of ownership. And you mentioned the rental uh, situation at the beginning. That's become a problem because hmm. half of millennials right now don't expect to ever be able to purchase a home without relocating and, frankly, just leaving Ontario. And that means more and more people are competing for a limited amount of rental stock. So... We've seen housing prices decline a little bit over the last year, but rental rates are up about 20%. Yeah, and that's, as you say, causing its own crisis. Are there plans to to increase that rental market? In other words, to build new units? It could be houses, could be high-rises. There's a number of options there. But there was a period of time a few years ago, Michael, where uh, developers didn't seem that keen on, on building them, and, and that, that caused a bit of a problem. We've seen a bit of a an increase, I guess, around the Hamilton-Burlington area anyway in the last little while. But uh, is, is that going to ease by, the, by some of the new builds that may be coming up in the next couple of years? There are definitely some new builds coming up in the next couple of years. Um, I think our challenge is just the population is increasing at such a rate that we're so behind the eight ball. And even if we are slightly increasing the amount of construction, it's it's barely catching up. So, you know, we built a lot of rental housing in the 60s and 70s. And that really is a lot of our affordable housing stock that we have, yeah. not just in Hamilton, but uh, London area right across the the greater Toronto area. Um, that affordable housing stock in the private market, um, you know, was was built at that time. And then basically we stopped building purpose-built rental through the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. It is starting to come back. Uh, last year in 2021, uh, just over 12,000 rental housing units were started, uh, started construction uh, across Ontario, which was the highest number since the 1980s. So, you know, that's that is a good sign. However... With the recent increase in interest rates, that increases the cost of financing, and a lot of these projects are now no longer economically viable. So 
those projects that started construction, I expect that they will complete. Um, but there's a lot of pressure on on the new housing market in terms of what's economically viable, what's not. And when something's not viable to move forward, well, unfortunately, it doesn't get built. Well, and therein lies the problem. And I know that uh, there's some people in this debate about, you know, affordable housing and where we sh- we're going to build, not just what we're going to build. Uh, and they, they look at the developers as the big bad people that are just going to, you know, pave over everything. Uh, we need places to live. I mean, and that's what developers do. They they do they build them in whatever kind we want. But uh, but they're in there to make money. I mean, you know, if you want to have stuff that is going to be affordable and uh, you want to make it as inexpensive as possible, uh, governments are going to have to get involved in this, maybe through subsidies or something else to help these people out. You know, I, you don't want to see anybody, a developer or anybody else, uh, you know, lose their shirt because uh, they build something that is not going to be uh, marketable, basically. And that, that was the case for a while, wasn't it? Well, housing and land development is a high-risk business. Um, there's a lot of companies that um, uh, did not make it through the last recession. And um, there's, there's a lot of concern out there um, coming into the next year or two, especially with the high interest rates. Um, we're also the largest employer in Hamilton. We uh, employ about 20,000 people. So it's an absolutely critical business um, to the economy in terms of uh, jobs and tax revenue. Um, and, and going forward, I think there's a lot of opportunity in Hamilton and Southern Ontario, um, but we're, we're in a bit of a shaky situation in terms of um, interest rates in the economy. But Long term, with the amount of growth, uh, I do expect that shovels will be hitting the ground. Um, you did mention affordable housing. Um, we're we're in the business of building affordable housing, but we do need partnerships from government to provide relief uh, in terms of some of the amount of taxes, um, et cetera. And that's not on the market housing. That's that's on the the below market affordable housing. And the provincial government did recently make some changes through Bill Twenty Three. Um, to eliminate development charges on affordable housing and nonprofit housing, that is certainly a huge help, uh, and that will entice some nonprofits and some more partnerships. But at the end of the day, if we're going to build below market housing, we really need assistance and partnership from all levels of government. Michael, while I've got you, there's another question that I'm getting from an awful lot of listeners every time we bring this subject up about affordable housing. Uh, it's, it's not just where it's going to get built. And I know that city councils uh, in our listening area are, are all environmentally conscious. And, and they, or the Hamilton Council, as we know, uh, have said, okay, nothing outside the the existing boundaries. Uh, I don't want to debate that right now. But if there are going to be infill developments, if it's going to be a, a, an old you know parking lot or something, or there's people are even talking about something in the north end, uh, do, do the developers themselves have a voice in in that discussion as to what they can build? I mean, you don't want to, as you say, build something where nobody wants to live there. And, and we've already seen that happen with a couple of uh, proposals that have come forward. All of a sudden, you've got neighbors that are going to say, we don't want that there. And and other people say, well, I'm not going to buy it if that's what you're going to build. Uh, there's There's got to be a balance here, doesn't there? Yeah, and it, it's always a bit of give and take, and, and that's why I use the word partnership. Um, it's It's got to work for the private sector partner in terms of them um, putting their cards on the table and taking on some risk, and then it's got to work for the government partner. And often cases, if we're going to build below market affordable housing, one of the most expensive components of building housing is the cost of land. Um, so there are opportunities for us to use government surplus land or even land that's not surplus, underutilized land. Think about all of those government offices or libraries that are one story. You could rebuild a library, have a brand new library where the library is on the first or second floor and there's housing above. So 
Um, we look to government um, to be a partner uh, and to work together with the private sector to try to come up with um, innovative solutions where we can bring more housing close to transit in strategic locations and, and try to deliver it, that some of that as affordable housing. But it's going to have to be, you know, get rid of this us versus them idea and let's work collaboratively on this. Unless we're working together, we're not going to get much done, Bill. Exactly. Uh, Michael, thank you much, uh, so much, brother, for the time. Always a pleasure having you on the program. And thanks for making time for us uh, through the last uh, year as well. Uh, all the best of the holiday season to you and your family. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. All the best for 2023. Take care. Michael Collins-Williams, the Chief Executive Officer of the West End Home Builders Association. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One problem that has persisted all the way through this year as we draw to a close, of course, has been the uh, the state of long-term care in the province of Ontario. Uh, COVID, of course, had a real impact on, on long-term care. And as we've talked about numerous times on the program, it didn't create the problem, but it certainly exacerbated it. And uh, governments have been talking around it and, and some throwing money at the problem. And uh, there's still a great deal of concern about what needs to be done and what should be done uh, to try to fix long-term care in this province. Well, there's a great op-ed piece about this in uh, theconversation.com. Uh, basically lays a, a, a step-by-step process here uh, to follow. Five steps for tackling Canada's long-term crisis. And uh, one of the co-authors of that piece joins us on the program. She is Colleen Grady, an associate professor of family medicine at Queen's University. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good to be here, Bill. Thank you. You know, it's it's great that I, I really enjoyed reading the piece, by the way, because we've talked about this problem extensively over the uh, last number of years. Uh, we've had the premier on. We've had various ministers of long-term care. They seem to go through them pretty quickly these days uh, when they realize that there's not a whole lot getting done here. Uh, but this looks like such a, a practical way of, of approaching the problem. Uh, you wonder why the government just can't simply adopt something like this and say, okay, let's just get this done. We seem to be going in circles, though. Well, you make a really good point. Um, we move a bit forward, we move a bit backwards, absolutely. Yeah. And I want to just make sure, I mean, it, this is a huge complex issue. And so the, it's uh, there's a multitude of factors that really need to be taken into. So uh, into consideration, our research really looked at um, the, the human factor, sort of ha the staffing piece and their mental wellness, and which we know impacts our ability to go to work to provide care. These are people that are caring for the most vulnerable in the society. So um, so it's not a, um, uh, you know, a fix everything, but I think we have to start with the people that are there doing the jobs, uh, otherwise they won't be there anymore. Well, and we saw that happen, didn't we? I mean, you know, when, when COVID hit and, and, you know, we started, well, we moved into the pandemic element, one of the first things they said was, you know, long-term care facilities, of course, there were outrageous numbers of, of people that were testing positive uh, and some dying as a result. And and they put it to staff and said, well, you know why? It's because those staff people, they're working in different facilities all the time. We have to stop them from doing that. Well, they guess they have to make a living. I mean, they had to do that to put food on their table. You are absolutely right. I mean, it's just a basic need is to be able to put food on the table, have shelter, um, and be able to live. And these people, uh, many working in long-term care, I mean, the wages, are, let's pay them a fair wage. That would be a good start. It's a very precarious uh, employment within long-term care. So yes, you're right. Several have to take several jobs because many are on contract. They're part-time. They don't have benefits. That's another piece. So they can't take sick days. They don't get paid for sick days. Um, so it, if we started even there, just to treat 
the people that are working in the facilities well enough to be able to make a living wage, to be able to take a day off when needed, to be able to, you know, have the luxury of at least a full-time job and, and knowing that you have a job on a day-to-day basis is uh, is a real, um, is a basic minimum and is a start. It would be a great start. As you were doing the research for this, uh, talking to people in the industry and, and the frontline workers, and uh, the frustration I'm hearing time and time again, though, Professor, is, uh, yeah, we, okay, that's great. Yeah, the province is throwing money at community colleges to try to get people through the program and get them qualified. And that's all well and good. But then they, they do that. And they go into a, an environment, whatever house that may be, and and they say these these conditions are ridiculous. You know, working yeah. long hours, as you say, not enough staff, which means that they run off their feet, and yeah. a lot of them are walking out the back door six eight months later. You are you've hit the nail on the head, Bill. I mean, if we don't look at retention, you can hire twenty and lose twenty. So we're no yeah. further ahead, and we do know that replacing uh, workers in any in any profession, not beyond healthcare, is costly. So why don't we do more to retain uh, who we actually attract to the profession and make it more of an attractive uh, place to work? So, yes. Yeah, so so as you mentioned, thank you for your compliment on the on the conversation piece. Um, the five steps we talk about, um, you know, there are structural issues that have been in place uh, for decades. And and luckily, I've been seeing in on the CPC News and a whole variety of pieces that in the last couple of months, provinces are starting to wake up. And so, you know, there's been a wage increase, um, at least a slight wage increase for some uh, PSWs. Um, certainly, uh, long-term care is taking a, a better look at some of these issues that have been long-standing. But even investing in things like training, so um, and this is beyond community colleges. This is organizations that can invest in the people that work in them, which sends the message that we value you and we want to support you and we want to give you the tools to do the the best job you can for the people that that live here. Um, leadership development as well. We we talked to people on the front line, including leaders who were quite exacerbated by, you know, the, the lack of PPE and the ability of to be able to support people, but also their own supports. Uh, we, you know, we all went through the same pandemic, um, but leaders, if they are if they are skills, if they have the skills to be able to support other people and to be able to acknowledge where there's moral distress, um, then they can act on it. Well, under that guide, and that uh, is one of the things that you brought up here, one of the bullet points, invest in leadership development. Uh, I was quite frankly shocked to understand that bullying and gossiping is is a major problem in a lot of these facilities among the staff. Uh, that's a leadership problem, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. Um, it, it, well, it certainly could be. Um, well, by that, I mean working conditions. I mean, if if you don't feel valued, uh, you don't think your boss is appreciating what you're doing, you don't think the other staff are appreciating what you're doing, uh, you're going to have a chip on your shoulder. I mean, that that's human nature that we're going to get, get pretty angry about that. And then you're going to take that into work and it's it's not a good environment for anybody. No, absolutely. It's not a good environment. And, and we're talking about people that live in long-term care. So we're talking about, you know, our, one of our most vulnerable populations and, and a work environment that is is conducive to bullying and gossip is absolutely uh, horrendous. So can leaders fix the entire problem? Probably not, but they need to be aware of it. They need to know it exists. And in long-term care, and we looked, this was part of a larger project. We looked at uh, various healthcare professions, but in long-term care, I think we heard the most about the bullying and gossip 
And in long-term care, we heard the most about the lack of a, uh, working in a team. So nobody had your back. You were on your own all the time. Nobody would step in to help you. Whereas we didn't hear that in the hospital sector, the primary care sector, um, even, you know, um, first responders. So, so yes, there's lots of work to be done here, but certainly starting to create an awareness and how valuable it is to value the people that come to work. That's a You mentioned it. You mentioned it in the piece, and I'm glad you brought it up again during our conversation here. There are standards uh, for this industry. Uh, the problem here is enforcement. I mean, you know, are they doing enough inspections? Are they making sure that the working conditions and the working environment are up to par? Uh, they don't, frankly, do as, as much as they should in situations like that. And and that's, you know, when things start to fall off the, the, the track and when that happens, uh, it, it can be a snowballing effect. I mean, th there's got to be some oversight here, doesn't there? Oh, there absolutely does need to be. And again, taking it back to the worker, um, the the personal support workers who make a, make up a large um, number of people working in the long term care sector, they're they're not supported by um, representative. They're not. It's not a regulated um, profession. So therefore, they don't even have a college that they can back them up on. So you're right. It's very loosey goosey. Unfortunately, there is um, many areas in which things can slip through the cracks and do. So there's nowhere to turn. So again, I, you know, again, the leadership piece is not the be all and the end all. But if you had leaders that were aware and were astute and were able to sort of um, uh, prioritize the, the, this, these things, then I think less would fall through the cracks, perhaps. Well, the one thing we can keep doing here to try to uh, make things better is to keep talking about it and, and talk about yes. the concerns and the challenges. And uh, the piece that you uh, co-wrote here, I think, goes a long way to, in, in that direction. Thank you so much for the time, Professor. Really appreciate it. And all the best of the holiday season to you and your family. And you as well, Bill. Thank you so much. Okay, Colleen Grady uh, from uh, Queen's University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Another troubling story is the influence that uh, the Chinese government is trying to have outside of China, specifically in Canada. Uh, the Prime Minister is still downplaying a story that was on Global News a couple of weeks ago that uh, the Chinese tried to influence the last federal election. Although CSIS has come out and said, yeah, we told him. Uh, he's sending, suggesting that there was no real story about that and there was just a general conversation. Uh, but it's starting to happen more and more now where we're starting to wonder about the, uh, the influence that Beijing has uh, in our commu uh, communities, not just uh, to do with our federal government. And uh, an interesting piece about this in the National Post that says Beijing is controlling the Chinese media in Canada and trying to influence opinion in this country uh, in a very, very subtle way. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Robert Hewish. Uh, Dr. Hewish is an associate professor with the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Uh, professor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. Great to chat with you today. Let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, we talked in the past about the influence the Chinese have tried to have in, in, for instance, in the academic world here uh, by throwing money at universities as for R&D. Uh, the fact that they're trying to do this through their media, too, and, and this is not gentle. I mean, they're, they're being right up front about this, about what they're saying in some of these media and the pressure they're putting on people that don't want to play ball and, 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 and espouse the, the, the baking policies. Yeah, and, you know, when you're dealing with uh, any government that's trying to create uh, subvert uh, actions or trying to create influence overseas, none of it happens by accident. There's always going to be some level of bureaucracy behind it. Otherwise, we get into the uh, conspiracy land. And with this case with China, uh, the United Front Work Department is who we need to be looking at. Now, this is a an organ of the, the, the Communist Party that has just hired 
hired in the last uh, last two years over forty thousand new employees to work on creating influence to overseas media, cultural groups, university campuses around the world. And Canada is high on their list. Uh, now, this group again, it's not uh, so much kind of a cloak and dagger, uh, you know. James Bond scenario, but it's about putting a lot of positive pressure on community groups to either do one of two things, to either get a positive message of Beijing out into the world, or to try to create disruption in countries that uh, may compete with foreign influence with, with China. And that's where we're sitting at, Bill. Like Right now, uh, you look at sort of the stated goals of the United Workers Front uh, Department. Uh, in, in China. And it's about really targeting countries that we've seen uh, where China's trying to gain more direct influence over resources and, uh, and, and, and technology. And we see that happening predominantly uh, throughout to Western Africa, into Asia, and even into the Pacific, all strategic plans for China. Now, in Canada, we've had these groups around for quite some time. And there, there's a few groups in particular that we could highlight uh, about this, and now again, you had the the independent Chinese language media that was operating in in the country, and most of them have now turned over to uh, to receiving influence from from this group. Now, the the goal originally was, if you remember, Canada was exporting a lot of coal and a lot of raw materials over to China, uh, even just a few years ago. Well, now that tap is sort of turned off, and we're we're getting into a more hostile economic environment. And so now what we're seeing is a move more towards pressuring um, on, on elected officials, on our elections, and even our university campuses. Not so much as a way to say, uh, here's the, the, you know, the good luck package or the, the, the package that makes Beijing sound like your new best friend, but to create forms of disruption and dissent so that uh, a country like Canada looks disorganized overseas when it comes to either protecting its own democratic institutions or even its own uh, security and values. And that seems to be, it's not a stated goal, but as you look at what they've been doing here, I guess, uh, as you say, it's, it's disruption. You know, there's, this is not an attempt to overthrow the government, but it's an attempt to get us fighting among ourselves, uh, which mm-hmm. makes us an easy mark. Yeah, and that's where the controversy right now is breaking out in in Ottawa because uh, you know it looks very much like uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, received a national security briefing in which he was told that Chinese consulate in Toronto had targeted eleven candidates in the twenty nineteen federal election, uh, but the security agencies had they said they found no evidence of covert funding directly by Beijing. So those were those were two sources that uh, that brought that out, and they also said that there's no evidence of Chinese money secretly flowing directly to the 11 candidates and that there's no indication that China's interference efforts had helped elect any of them. But there's still this interference level about trying to to organize community groups to either disrupt or dissuade uh, our own elections. And that, I think, is the problem because it's almost like a soft touch uh, where you know it's not so much that, that China's putting their own MSS that's the military state security agents uh, abroad um, but they're finding ways to find third-party groups to to create that influence or disruption and it's subtle and gentle and when you've got uh, a bureaucracy of 40,000 employees strong and an entire branch it's called the eighth the bureau number eight eight out of twelve that's dedicated entirely to this, 
that's a lot of power and influence and organization that can that can be brought forward. And let's remember that with China's intelligence in Canada, they're very aware of our social and political divisions here. And a lot of these influence campaigns try to touch on those pressure points to wedge and divide. And so if you see these, uh, you know, the cases overseas and, and even in the U.S. where uh, Chinese uh, uh, student groups that were backed by the United Work Front Department uh, were working on canceling lectures and canceling the public speakers, such as even the Dalai Lama in a few cases. So mm -hmm. it's this kind of disruption that makes uh, China's nemesis look clumsy to its future allies, and I think is the big ticket approach to what they're getting at. And, and I, I always get a little upset when I hear politicians simply dismiss this and say, well, there's no evidence that they actually exchanged money. So maybe it wasn't that big a deal. It is a big deal. And besides mm -hmm. the fact that they said, CSIS didn't say they didn't do it. They said we couldn't find that they did it. Well, these guys are well, good yeah. at this stuff. Uh, so that's one of the reasons you couldn't. It's like, it's like you know, in a, in a trial, I mean, if you found not guilty, that doesn't mean you're innocent. That means they couldn't prove guilt. Uh, and, yeah. and we have to look at it from that standpoint, don't we? Well, I mean, if they're expecting to see direct wire transfers going through TD Bank or, or Royal Bank, I mean, guess again. I mean, that's not yeah. how uh, foreign currency flows in and out of, of China to begin with. I mean, there's a lot of things even with their, their WeChat uh, social media network that, that, can, that can bring money back and forth. And who's to say uh, exactly how this operation is going? But yes, it's, it's looking. I mean, you can't, you can't have any form of influence um, without some money being exchanged. You put a group of people in a room, someone's got to buy the snacks, the very minimum. Um, mm -hmm. But beyond that, if there's any sort of organization to it, then yes, there has to be some level of money going somewhere, somewhen. Uh, it just, it's going to be the, the job of our security agencies to try to figure out the mechanisms of doing it. I, I mean, just as a note back to work I've done in North Korea in the past, we realized that uh, when they were shipping illicit goods at sea, that it was too clunky to use SWIFT and the international banking systems and the hubs in Hong Kong and Singapore. So they started to pay these uh, these illicit shipments through WeChat. So, I mean, that peer-to-peer -peer, uh, social banking, I guess is what you could call it, could be another avenue to look at. Absolutely. Uh, chilling story that we really have to keep an eye on. And I'm glad you had some time to talk to us about it this morning. Uh, as always, Professor, thank you so much. Uh, all the best of the holiday season to you and yours. And uh, we'll talk again in the new year, I'm sure. Looking forward to it, Bill. Thanks very much. And same to you. Take care. Robert Hewish, Associate Professor at Dalhousie University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.